1: I think the first films that I was exposed to came to my mother. You know, she liked The Godfather, Goodfellas, a lot of Scorsese's films, but she was also really into romantic comedies like When Harry Met Sally, stuff like that. Really, I think it was just in a, sort of an inquisitive thing of me just trying to expand my palate, sort of realizing that that's where a lot of my interests sort of lied within that realm. At first it was as, as an actor, uh, but then I sort of segued
0: into, you know, behind-the-camera work where I found really the most fulfillment. Philip Eumanns was 17 years young when he started making his feature film, Burning Cane. And let me tell you, it's a deep film. It stars Wendell Pierce, and it's it's an old soul kind of movie about old folks trying to get by. And it's deep. It's not something about youth and trying to break into a party. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's what you'd expect from a young teenage filmmaker. And this is not that. This is a mature polished, deep, poetic, powerful film made for next to nothing. Burning Kane is on Netflix now, but you don't have to have seen it to appreciate this conversation. We talk about what it's like to make a movie, to work with actors, and to deal with budgets and write scripts and get shots and handle all the craziness that inevitably happens on a movie set. This one is for everyone who wants to make a movie or wants to know how movies are really made. And everyone who wants to know how this young genius got started. You're going to hear a lot more from Philip Eumanns in the future. So let's go. It's Philip Eumanns on Toray Show. So you're 19 You've made a film which is very mature. It's sort of an old soul sort of film. You know, Mm. usually younger folks make a film about being young. This film has lots of older people. But I want to go back to the beginning of you and film. Like, where do you mark the beginning of, like, falling in love with cinema? Mm. That's such an interesting question.
1: Now that I'm thinking about... You know, the films that sort of inspired me to think about film outside of like the traditional sort of three act structure sort of space. You know, I have to point to like a, you know, a 2001 or a, or, a, you know, you know, honestly, I feel like it's kind of a classical sort of piece. But like there will be blood in terms of its mm. structure. I think Paul Thomas Anderson is one of the most like invigorating directors maybe the, maybe I the drink best. Your milkshake <laughs> i love that film. yeah i love that movie so much it might at, be at the
0: oscars i was like how did that not no, win no i know I know, I know that yeah, year was, was like...
1: low-key popping though there no country for old men also came out that year that was year. a great film that was too. a great movie yes. too but what was the first
0: film that made you say oh i could do that
1: the first film that made me say oh i can do that Ooh, that's an even that's a more interesting question because thinking about it in terms of like what expanded me about thinking film as like a, a more malleable art form, I'd say it was probably two thousand and one. For a while, I said that, that that was my favorite film. You know, two thousand and
0: one made you say, "I could do that." That film no, is so No, no, listen, so listen. Epic. Let me
1: tell you. But let me tell you, the reason I thought of I thought of it in that way is because, I mean, in truth, it was the first thing that opened my mind up to film being sort of an art form outside of just a like I said, a traditional three act structure. It was the first film that really seemed like it was the result of the director's intention and vision and ambition outside of anything any sort of imposed story structure. you know so that to me was so invigorating to see. but, you know, for a while I would say two thousand and one was my favorite film, but it's really not until I expanded my palette and saw more work, you know uh, but I think that was definitely the first film that I saw that sort of pushed me to see it outside of that traditional way. And then from that, I started making my own pieces. One of my first short films was also about a kid who was obsessed with 2001. You know what okay, I mean? Okay. And so much of that stuff early on is so direct in terms of, like, like reflecting on yourself, you know? Um, but so, yeah.
0: So what are some of the other films that you can now say these were building blocks in me becoming a filmmaker? Uh, I'd say, like, Buki is a big
1: one. By Mambedi from Senegal, 1973. Okay. Tukibuki is dope. Uh, it's about these, a pair of teenagers living in Dakar, and they, uh, they dream of going to Paris. They feel sort of disenfranchised with their life. Uh, and then so they start to sort of scavenge around uh, Senegal looking for resources to go to Paris and not be completely broke when they get there. But by the end of the film... You know, they don't get on the the, the 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 voyage away or the cruise that takes them to Paris in a weird sort of way. But that film was dope in that it was so so raw, so experimental in that, you know, I think Membetti was was making that and also in a sort of grassroots way, didn't have the same tie to his investors or at least it didn't impose any sort of creative intention on him, you know. And I think that was also a film that was so interesting in terms of how, like, you look at the time that it was made, like, it's brutal and visceral. I mean, it's beautiful, but you see, like, honestly, cows getting gutted in the beginning of the film, and it's like a super, like, it's, it's just such a, a, a an imprint of the time that it was made and the place that it was made. I mean, that same film couldn't be made in America, you know okay. what I mean, even then. Okay. You know, showing that sort of, like, brutal domestic brutality, you know what I mean, and seeing a cow get... Gutted, even though it's a part of the process. You know, yeah. a lot of people eat meat. But, you know, there's just so much about that film that felt so raw and unadulterated I think was also super dope and it's beautiful. What else? What um, other films? I'd say, uh, I think Days of Heaven was really, really dope. Um, uh, Dog Day Afternoon, I think, uh, you know, Sydney Lumet is super dope. Uh, Al Pacino is an incredible actor. You know, pretty much all of Scorsese's catalog, I think Barry Jenkins is at the forefront. Oh, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, Sarah's helping me out. reminded me one is one of my favorites. Killer Sheep, Charles uh-huh, Burnett, uh-huh, which I yeah. saw actually Amazing. after I made Burning Cane. Okay, um, and then you know Terrence Malick's work, Tree of Life, uh, Days of Heaven, Badlands, um, and actually expanding more into Kubrick's work, like uh, like Barry Lyndon and uh, Full Metal Jacket. You know, uh-huh. a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of a dope palette of filmmakers in that way too. You know, also. Uh, one Car Y, you uh-huh, know, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, from Hong Kong. Uh-huh. Um, who else? Who else? Who else? Who else? Um, uh, D, Super Dope. I think Barry and Ava, you know, together are at
0: sort of the forefront of pushing. I mean, it's a very broad palette. Yeah. It's global. Yeah. It predates your life. I mean, do you have parents who were cinephiles or was there a cinema down the street that was playing all kinds of crazy stuff like how did you get just aware and 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 interested in this just broad i mean like this is these are really deep films that i you know was not into when i was 19 you know mm-hmm. it took me years you know I some of those films i saw and was like what and then years later i was like oh that was great so i'm yeah, just yeah. curious how you even got to this level of cinema Taste at this young of an age, um, you know. I don't. I. I. I don't know.
1: I think the first films that I was exposed to came to my mother. You know, what I mean, a lot of them were uh, my mother is. You know, she liked you know the Godfather, Goodfellas, a lot of Scorsese's films. But she was also really into romantic comedies like Harry met, when Harry met Sally, stuff like that. So that was like honestly the first films that I was watching when I was younger were a lot of romantic comedies and a lot of that honestly in, in contrasting a lot of like Scorsese's work. Um, and then really from even before that, I mean, most of it, like any kid was like Pixar, you know, you know, animated films, you know? Um, but I don't know, I'd say really, I think it was just in a sort of an inquisitive thing of me just trying to expand my palate, sort of realizing that that's where a lot of my interests sort of lied within that realm. At first it was as, as an actor. Uh, but then I sort of segued into, you know, behind the camera work where I found really the most fulfillment. Uh, but then I went to a high school called the New Orleans center for creative arts, uh, for film. And I have to say that I think going there did force my palate to expand as well. You know what I mean? Every Friday we were watching movies that none of us would have picked out on our own. You know what I mean? Like M by Fritz Long or like, uh, Harold and Maude or, you know what I mean? Stuff that really I, I, if I had saw or even read the sort of description of, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have checked it out, but having been, you know, really kind of forced in the classroom setting to to receive that material and see all that expanded our palettes. I so think. you were
0: thinking about being a director throughout high school?
1: Oh, throughout, for sure. I went into high school saying, like, this is what I'm going to do. To you be know? a director.
0: Yeah. You, you talked about taking acting or wanting to be an actor, and a yeah. lot of people talk about studying acting is great training for screenwriting and directing. Mm. How did that How did inform that, you? Mm. That's a great question,
1: you know, because I think, you know, I did start out, I started out in theater, then started doing some sort of, you know, the local roles that would come in and out of the city. And then I, once I did start, you know, directing, I think, I think something that I had to learn on Burning Kane about directing, which I do think works in tandem with, you know, learning as an actor beforehand, uh, was also allowing the space for actors to work, you know, because as a director in my earlier pieces, I was so over the shoulder. And I look at why a lot of those mean, films, over the shoulder? like just so, so... So micromanagey, like so, like uh, of the actors. Yeah, in a way that was just not productive, you know. And I and I realized why was I so stressed out all the time? Why did those films never really? Why did I? Why could I not really get behind any of it? you know, people, for anyone to be able to create, I feel like you need to have, you need to foster an environment where people feel safe and they can bring their ideas and all of that to the table, you know, and not feel like it is in any way a shut down sort of one-to-one tunnel vision sort of mentality coming from the director. Yeah. You know, and I think I had to, uh, it's not like, I mean, I was like an overlord on the sets, but I also think that I was dealing with a lot of my friends who weren't actors on those earlier shoots before Burning Cane. And so I felt like, I felt, almost the need to be more micromanaging about every little thing. But it just worked. It was counterintuitive, you know, because even though they weren't traditional actors, they still had ideas and some of them were cool. So me sort of separating and tuning that out just wasn't productive. On Burning Cane, I was forced, one, because of the fact that I was shooting and directing. You know, so there's a mind split there. So no matter what, no matter how active I wanted to be, there was always going to be some sort of space within
0: that. I mean, a friend of mine is a Hollywood director and he let me hang out on his set once. And I was surprised at how little he would say to the actors mm. that they would do a take and he'd come over and be like that was great let's try it slightly different mm. and 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 just and then like have a long talk with the cinematographer yeah. a long talk with the lighting guy yeah. but like the chats with the actors were and i'm like what, you know what it, and he's like you know i i have to trust them as artists i cannot tell them like you, and there certainly can't be any sort of technical thing of, like, make sure you sit here, because the, then yeah. they're out of the moment. Exactly. And yeah. it's just a very light brushstroke of what you can do with the actors. Yeah. No, I and I get that 100%. I
1: also think coming to set with a sort of like mind, where at least at the end of the day, you can fall back and know that our intentions with this character are in the same space. That's all you can really ride on, you know? Because at a certain point, like you said, you do have to respect them as artists and give them the space to create alongside you of course there are still those active mutualistic conversations that'll happen you know in between takes saying like you said like oh maybe we could try it this way or doing it in that way but I think it's just uh it's just like
0: a little mood yeah it can't even be like a big conversation I mean I guess you have some of those when you're prepping yeah exactly and you're not on the set but on the set it's like thing has can to, you yeah. do it a little more Mellow, like yeah. and, and and like uh, okay, or a little more up, like you know. But it's like mm. you know, yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's very, very. Yeah. Some actors talk about, yeah. He came over. Who's I was? Who's I was talking to? To somebody the other day, as actress, and she said that the director would come over and say a little more yellow, and just walk away. And or or or, 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 or the director would say, "Tell the truth. Just mm. tell the truth," and then walk away. And like. You know, you, a lot of people be like, what does that mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like a direct note, but it
1: is. But and, it's like, and it's also it's also the kind of note that is definitely leaving it up for the actor to have their freedom to interpret that yes, note, you know? Yes. And that's the whole thing, you know? I Just respecting their space as artists, which I think was just a big lesson with Bernie Kane. And it paid dividends, you know, because of the fact that I, I said I had to sort of separate from it. But still be present, but also also have those simultaneous conversations in my head about, you know, framing and lighting
0: and all those kind of things in between. Well, being a director is really challenging because you really are bringing left and right brain together. Because mm. there's all the technical stuff of, you know, the lighting and the cameras and that sort of stuff. And then there's the, you know, it's called the left brain stuff of, you know, making sure the story flows and make sure the actors are comfortable and yeah. hitting the... Things that the emotional points have to hit. And, yeah. you know, and your piece is very emotional, you know? And there's scenes where there's, you know, o- older people dancing with younger people or whatever. And so, I mean, like, you know, there's the emotional stuff, and then you got to get the camera angle right and the lighting right. And just talk about combining the two... Sides of your brain, and mm-hmm. like you might be on the set, and like you know, you talk to the lighting mm-hmm. guy, like okay, so we need a little bit more filter on the blah blah blah, blah mm-hmm. da. and then you turn to the actor, and like okay, so we need a little more of this set, right? And like it's it's the whole brain.
1: Yeah, yeah. So okay, so that's. And I also think one that 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 combination of the two is also very indicative of like really grassroots indie filmmaking, mm-hmm. of how like really everybody on set has to wear multiple hats. Like, for me, I was wearing multiple hats, you know, writer, director, cinematographer, editor, also producer. My producers, my best friends who were with me the whole time. Ojo Akinlana, he was our, uh, you know, first AD producer, production designer, and occasional boom-op. You know, Mose Mayer was our producer, second AD, uh, first AC, and always boom-op. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, that kind of stuff, (laughs) where, like... And also, Mose would, you know, hop off of, after he'd finished, he'd check the card and and load the card into uh, into the data center. And then he'd call his mom to make sure craft services was still on the way. You know what I'm saying?
0: <laughs> she was, his mom was doing craft his, services? His mom,
1: my mom would chip in. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes we, we would usually go out and have a bulk buy for a lot of the snacks that would be on set. But for, like, hot food, uh, my mom, his mom, or his dad would, would come through and, and deliver that. Wow. So look, no, like it's, I, I got on a different tangent, but I think I just said like what you're saying in terms of like juggling all those different things, I think is really indicative not only of the experience of directing, you know, but also of, like I said, of that
0: grassroots indie
1: filmmaking mentality, you know.
0: We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door, thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center black voices turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced and as black as we are stories should never be about us, without us listen now to black stories, black truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts influencer,
1: it's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor.
0: I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. So where'd you get the money to make this picture? Uh... Really, you me you were a producer on yeah. this, so you were partly like, "Hey, can I have some
1: money, please?" No, no, no. I put all of my savings into it, which at the time was like twenty five hundred from cash, birthday, and savings bonds. Um, I put me and Mo's did an Indiegogo where we got around like twelve hundred, maybe fifteen hundred. Don't remember exactly, but it was definitely fifteen hundred or below. And then I was working at a beignet stand called Morning Call Coffee Stand where I was stacking up.
0: Love beignets. Hey,
1: beignets are solid. That beignet stand is no longer around though, so, you know, RIP to Morning Call. (laughs) Um, But either way, that was a dope high school job in terms of like, it was quick, kinetic, and it was cash only, so I could just stockpile a lot of that. But in terms of production, we had maybe 10 to 15K to shoot the film.
0: How much did the film cost total?
1: In terms of like everything at the end of where I sit here right now. Yeah. Roughly 60, considering grants, considering grants, which takes about 25k off of that, plus a cash award. So, really, it's more like, I say, take 20, 28k off that, but that's in consideration for
0: everything that comes with releasing a film. So, you spent $32,000 of your own money that you raised somehow,
1: Yeah, yeah. So, it was my but it was all over time. Sure, like it was like it was at no point was there ever anything more than two three thousand available at any given time, sure, so it was like over when I look at the two year cycle of
0: everything spent, roughly thirty thirty two it's amazing that you, we never had more than two thousand dollars, but we just kept getting more more bits and pieces I mean Spike Lee talks about that. If you read his early diaries of making the first couple of films, they mm. might be instructive to you because he's like keeping a running diary of how they're making. she's got to have it and the second film and the third film. and it's definitely like we need to color correct. We need to go get $5,000. How are we going to do that? And, like, we yeah. had a party. We did this. We asked this person, whatever. Okay, now we got that money. So now we can go do that. And, yeah. like, it's this constant... It was never, like, we got a big budget and how are we going to spend it down? But, like, how are we going to get the next yes, small that's check exactly. to
1: keep the train going? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that was the whole thing. But I was also super fortunate that, you know, I think in speaking on our age, why it was kind of a help in truth because people... I don't think, I, I think they, and if I'm being completely transparent, I think they, a lot of people who helped us out didn't see it at quite as seriously as we did, you mm. know what I mean? And so with that, there was a lot of stuff that we got for free that we otherwise wouldn't have. That's why I always said, like, I don't know if I could have made that even if I, when I was 18, because I feel like once you're 18 and an adult, people expect an entirely different thing, you know what I mean? Also, you know, it's indicative of the South as well, you know. There's, of course, a lot of hostility, sort of low-key brewing in the South, but I feel like it is... Uh, it's also i don't know it's also there's also so much uh so much of a sort of giving grassroots spirit to a lot of the people down there like there's so many locations that we got for free like straight up that otherwise if we weren't kids trying to make a movie that they of course we dealt with everybody in a really respectable way sure but there was if we weren't i think in the position that we in that that we were in uh, then I just I, I I'm not sure that it would have worked out quite as well in our favor,
0: you know. I mean, imagine there's people listening who who are dreaming of doing what you have done. So I want to take them through some of the steps, yeah, so they can start to see how they might be able to do it for themselves. Gotcha. How'd you write a real movie that has this emotional weight and tells a story and is not simplistic and like how how how'd you do that? How long did it take? Hmm.
1: So I wrote the short first, and then when I realized I was going to make a feature, then I expanded it to a feature draft in about like a week. But the feature draft was like 80 pages, and that was a very rough stage of it. But in truth, it was like, how did I do it? I, For me, I was just falling back into something that I knew very well. You know, I grew up in the church. You know, I, I've I've been around that environment my entire life. So it's it wasn't like I had to pull from anything completely outside of my ethos, you know. And I and that's why I felt like what you know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I feel like for your first feature, like that's the best way to go about it. I feel like always approaching subjects matter sub uh, always approaching subjects that you can really give an authentic insight on or speak honestly to, whether it's a you know, a positive remark or a negative or a criticism or a cautionary tale. I always think it just further validates the intention and vision of the work when you can honestly fall back and say, Well, I do know this, you know? And where you can fall back in your guts and say, like, oh, I've lived within this. I know someone wouldn't say that. Or I know that they would. Or I know, you know what I'm saying?
0: That's one of the big things, that writing a st- like the, the structural part of the story, they do this, this, then this, and this. That's hard, but it's one piece, right? Yeah. But getting the dialogue right. How do you do that? Also, so I think, look,
1: I, I've always felt like I can write better for someone older than I can write for people my age. Okay. It's, for some reason, it's so much easier to write Uh, In terms of dialogue that feels honest and real from an older perspective, it's so weird. But I also think working with actors and workshopping the script with your actors is an important way to fine tune that because they'll tell you, it's not like it was an unbreakable document. It's still a malleable living, breathing thing. And especially when you'll block out or work a scene, you know, actors will tell you straight up if a, if a line isn't working or if it feels awkward and being open to that, I think is important to getting dialogue in a good shape, you know, and for them, To me, that's, like, the biggest test of it. And they also have this really dope feature on Final Draft now where you can test your dialogue with, like, different voices. Now, they sound robotic as hell, but, like, you can still sort of see how it's going to flow. But the real tried-and-true way to test your dialogue is to sit down with actors and have them breathe life into it, and then you'll find out. It'll be painfully apparent what's working and what's not.
0: One of the challenges of good dialogue is that there's one writer, but both people in the scene cannot sound the same. They don't Mm. talk the same. They don't come from the same place. Yeah. So you have to write two different or three different, right? Like, and each person has their own background, their own intentions, their own whatever. And, like, sometimes, like, keeping... How do you keep those straight so that you don't fall into the trap of, like... They both kind of sound the same. Or overly being overly expository or like, you yes. know what I'm saying?
1: That's a hu- and that's a huge thing, dude, like balancing exposition. For me, with Burning Kane, I pretty much said screw exposition. Drop us into this moment and kind of a, I don't know. For me, I just felt like in terms of balancing voices, like you said, intention is key. Because every, every person, every individual has something that, in, in truth, they're trying to get out of a conversation or some sort of result that they have with anything they're interacting with. And I think that with, you know, with Burning Kane, especially with Helen and Daniel for me and Tillman, all of their intentions were very, very clear. And with Tillman specifically and in, in writing for him, for example, like uh, I have to give major props to Wendell as well, especially with Wendell like Pierce. Wendell Pierce.
0: Ooh, dude. Ooh. Ooh, let's just stop right there. <laughs> How'd you get Wendell Pierce in your film? Okay, now look,
1: it was hella fortunate. I'm going to tell you how it went down. So. Uh, I was at Morning Call, like I said, and I was waiting on a woman named Lula Elzey. This was in like the weeks leading up to production. Um, We still hadn't cast the pastor yet. And I was telling her, I was waiting on Lula, like literally serving her beignets. uh, And she was asking me about what I was doing with my life. You know, I told her I was a NOCA student and she had went to NOCA. um, The school, school yeah, the high school, yeah. Um, And there are alumni is like pretty stacked. John Batiste went there, Harry Connick Jr., the Marcellises, Wendell. Um I think Anthony Mackey too. Oh wow. Yeah, it's lit. It's lit. Um and so I was talking to Lula about it, and then she asked me what I was doing. I told her I was gearing up to shoot my first feature. Uh and then uh, I ran her through some of the roles in the film, told her that the preacher was the only role that hadn't been cast. And then she was like, What did I think of Wendell Pierce playing the role? And I was like, you know, that'd be amazing, but you know, I have no way to get in touch with Wendell Pierce. He seemed completely out of my stratosphere. And in truth, in terms of what I achieved at that point, he was. But at that point, Lula texted him and was like, hey, Wendell, there's this NOCA student who's shooting his first feature this summer. Uh, he wants you to be in it. And Wendell was like, he texted back. he was like, okay, give him my email. And I got his email and I sent him the script. And then I said, hold up, don't read it. And I took that week to expand his role because the role of the pastor, one, I think it, it allowed me to sort of make a commentary on the three pillars of that community in terms of looking at the pastor and the mayoral status they have within the Baptist community, you know, And how really, in truth, their word, despite knowing their fallibility as human beings, you know, their word to much of that congregation is second only to God, you know. And I felt like Wendell had such an authoritarian sort of like sort of aura about him. Like he's such a he has such a without even trying to Wendell. Wendell has a commanding presence, you know what I mean? And I felt like that was so clear. And then so I told him not to read it, sent him that other one. And then he said, uh, you know, he was interested in it for sure. And he really, really connected to the writing. But it was a matter of getting the dates to work. And so I kept sending him dates. He'd be like, ah, I'm shooting here. Ah, I'm in Milan here. Ah, I'm in Toronto then. Or ah, I'm in New York or wherever it was. And then I was like, we, we had gotten into production. And at that point, we weren't clear. It wasn't clear that he was going to be our pastor. But once I had entertained the idea or at least thought about Wendell being the pastor, I couldn't see anybody else in it. Like Once that seemed like it was possible and I was in communication with him, I was obsessed with that. Honestly, I was super annoying with it. Can't lie to you. You know what I'm saying? And so I sent him a note. I sent him a note after it seemed like it wasn't going to work out. And I said, look, look, it would mean the world to me for you to play this role. Like I can't, I literally cannot imagine anybody else playing this role. So I'm done with giving you dates that don't work. You tell me whenever it might be able to work for you. And that's what we're doing. And then he gave me two dates and I was like, bet that's when it's happening. And so I was trying to shoot all of the film before my senior year started, and we shot the bulk of principal photography. But Wendell's days, we only shot with Wendell really for two and a half days, you know. And we shot, one day we shot 16 pages of material. It was an incredibly long day. But shout out to my crew, everybody who was just
0: down for the ride, real, really. When you start to have conversations with someone like Wendell, mm-hmm. is it primary, is it primarily... Creative, or is it also like you need some kind of name to get Mm. attention Mm. from the audience from the potential homes? Yeah. And he's by far the biggest name in In the the piece. Yeah. And you need somebody. I mean, like, what are like a thousand films come out every month? And you know, I mean, like you need somebody to Mm -hmm. for people to like, why am I checking on this film? Well, Sean Connery's in it. I like Sean Connery. Okay, great. And you would not have gone. If Sean Connery, would, and maybe it sucked, mm-hmm. but you would not have paid. You already paid your money, yeah, because Sean Connery was in it, or because J Lo was in it, or yeah. whoever, yeah. you know. And Wendell Pierce is like, oh, well, let me check this out. I like Wendell yeah. Pierce. Yeah, like in the pulpit. That sounds like. So I mean, that does that commercial mm. hook of it all start to become part of the conversation for yourself?
1: That's interesting, and I think, dude, let for being completely transparent, those kind of conversations are inseparable from thinking about getting a film out. Now, the root of it is, of course, creative because Wendell got to where he is because of his talent. Yeah, I mean, he's yeah. there because he's a, in a, a, an, an otherworldly talent of an actor. And it's true. He's still such a student of the craft. When I was, I think, in truth, Wendell being on up the ante of everything... Sure. You know, it because it made us, one, look at the project in a whole different way. But it wasn't like we weren't going to make the film. We had still were shooting the film regardless because at the end of the day, I was falling back into, you know, the story was important. It felt like something personal to me. But I also am fully aware of the fact that that's how the machine works sometimes,
0: you know. What did you learn about acting, about filmmaking from him, from working with him, from
1: watching mm, him? Mm.
0: I think going back into... um.
1: I think Wendell was just someone that I was just super, super humbled by in like the dopest way. Like I feel like one, he motivated me to, uh, it's so interesting, man, like me and Wendell outside of, outside of shooting, like I consider Wendell like a, a friend and he, he gives me a lot of really dope life advice. Um, I think in terms of like the biggest thing that I learned about Wendell one was like the confidence in terms of making sure that I was fully sort of confident in my own vision and intent and not This is more a life thing, but not really letting some of my insecurities get in the way sometimes. Uh, I think in terms of like being on set applicably, uh, because of that mind split that I had, Wendell was definitely an example of me having to be as as sort of trying to be as hands-on as I possibly could, balancing directing and being a DP, but also really, really having the space to just let this man breathe life into the situation, I'll give you a great example. Okay, so when we were shooting in the church, uh, in the sermons, so I I didn't write the sermons as Wendell was preaching it. They were like, it was like, he who dies with the most toys wins, period. Like, um, you know, the devil, blah, 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 in a very sort of matter of fact, straight away, and Wendell was like, hey, do you want me to read it like this? I was like, no, no, you know, because as a Baptist preacher, whenever they're ramping up, they'll get ramped up. They can do whatever they want and right there. And I think that was another moment where it was like, you know what? So much about what we experience on screen is also really through that artistic funnel of the actor and their interpretation of those words, you know, because no matter what I could have written on the page, you know what I mean? No matter how matter of fact it was, Wendell brought life to that in a way and added nuances to that delivery in a way that I could have never even written on the page. You know, so that was one. I think it was it was humbling that he was engaged in material, but it was also
0: humbling. And I realized just how. what does eating healthy mean to you? T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash dot Thrivemarket.com slash Does Monday at the office feel like a storm?
1: Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly, it's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people, and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for All. How much the actors bring to the palette, outside of him being the name attached to the project, which he is, um, I think just he he further validated the the artistic intent of the project through and through. Uh, so, So I think both of the things that you said about, you know, the commercial awareness... The film outside of Wendell, there's like nothing commercial about Burning Cane. You know what I mean? Except the fact that we got an actor who achieves at such a high level to really buy into it creatively. And that's made the world a difference.
0: Um, casting in general is critical, critical to filmmaking. What is your general philosophy on casting and who to choose and who not to choose? Mm.
1: For me, it's uh, you go with the best actors period no matter if it's subjective should. but but it's but it's also sometimes something you can't even articulate or tell say why you feel a certain connection to someone in a particular role sometimes it can be a sort of uh, literally and I say this because it, it really can get hard to articulate sometimes why you feel a certain connection with someone in a role like I'll say I'll tell you I'll break down how we did casting for burning cane outside of Wendell so with uh Kaia, Kaya was initially, she plays Helen, the mother. Uh, Kaia was initially supposed to be uh, a producer and our casting director. And she came on after my instructor at Noka brought her on because she was a producer on Treme, a show that shot in New Orleans.
0: Amazing show. HBO, uh, great show, great David show. David
1: Simon. Yep, yep. Uh, and so Kaia came on, but after she read the script, she was like, oh no, I'm Helen. And then I read with her and damn right she was. In like a, the most uncanny way, like Kaya has actually lived so much of what Helen's gone through in terms of, you know, Kaya is a is a is a, is a badass. She is a very very isolated spirit, but she's also been sort of she's trying to support emotionally, trying to support so many of the men that she loves in her life, despite a lot of their sort of you know you know unsavory you know actions from time to time. So she'd really lived, breathed that whole scenario. That was a no brainer. And then Dominique McClellan, who plays Daniel. I went out to, since I was an actor before, I reached out to my professor or and my first theater coach, a woman named Tommy Myrick, who's a theater director in New Orleans. And she said, after she read the script, she was like, there's only one person to read with. At that point, I had read with a couple other people. I initially thought Daniel was going to be 18. But then when I read with Dominique, who's in his 30s, it changed everything about what I thought about it. Because I'm like, who at 18 has a kind of emotional baggage at that point in time that, that, that Dominique would have? Dominique was from the backwoods of Mississippi too. He knew exactly what it was like to live in that sort of rural, rigidly Protestant landscape. So I think it wasn't a traditional casting in any way, far more grassroots, Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, But in that, I think it added a level of authenticity to all the characters in the film that I think is kind of irreplaceable in retrospect.
0: So directing, on set, Mm -hmm. what is the difference between being a good director and being a great director? (sighs) Good director and a great
1: director. Well, I don't know. I don't. I feel like I, I can't say I'm a, I can't say I even know the difference, you know, I'm just getting started. I think there's so much about everything that I still have to learn and get better at, you know. Um, but I think I would consider, I'd hope to say that I'm a good director at this point. You know, I feel like I, I, I put my all into the process, but I don't know if I can make that distinction quite yet because I honestly don't think I've gotten there yet. But I'm just getting started, and I do think I'll get there someday.
0: Well, what do uh, you need to be great? What is the difference between where you are and, and and being great?
1: I think life experience, really, for me, like I felt, like I said, I fell back into the things that I knew and the people that I grew up around in those kind of spaces. But I think also in in sort of having the developed patience and and insight into into life that sort of expands outside of just a technical knowledge of filmmaking, you know. I think also being inquisitive and always intending to find the humanizing qualities of things, always trying to tell the truth and in every way trying to demonize or paint one side of any picture. You know, I think all that sort of comes with a a more mature perspective as a director, you know, and for me, I, I definitely can say my intention as an artist is to provide, you know, humanizing stories of the black experience, you know, and I think with that intention, it's, it's, there's a mature intention there, but I do think there is sort of a lot of living and a lot of growing before I can, but I also think maybe it's a little egotistical to ever call myself, like, objectively great, you know? I, f- I feel like most of that can stuff... Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's, like, you know, a, a Kobe mentality, you know? Some of that maybe some killer mentality that you need. I don't know.
0: Is there a moment, a shot, a scene that you look back on as, like, that was the hardest scene or the hardest shot to get right in the whole shoot? Mm. And how and why was it so hard and how did you overcome that challenge
1: okay so i'm going to say there was a certain that's that's a great question um there was a i'm going to say the, honestly the opening shot of the scene it wasn't that the in, actually getting it but there it was just chaos around it the opening shot of getting those burning cane uh so i was we were driving down the cane fields lower valley road pulled into the side um of this sort of like This sort of like narrow, narrow sort of like almost like corridor within the cane fields. In the distance, you see the cane burning. Uh, We drove in. We were driving with a truck. I was with Moe's, my producer, and then our hair and makeup. There wasn't anyone on set. We were all friends. So whenever I was getting B-roll, they would come with me. We went out and we were shooting it. And then the overseer of the Laurel Valley Plantation, driving this sort of beefed up monster truck, came down that same corridor. And when we were trying to leave, he blocked us off. Then calls called the sheriff's office to and they all swarmed, bro. They all started clogging in. And luckily, you know, shout out to my mother. Honestly, my mother was around on base camp, which was like maybe half a mile down the road. And she drove in. I didn't have my license. I was terrified. Uh, so I was like, one, we're trespassing. I don't have my license and we're black and they're not. You know, yeah. so we're like, yeah. so uh, in rural Louisiana, you know what I mean? So a ton of things were racing in my head, but my mother is an OG because she said she was able to divert their attention from the fact that I didn't have my driver's license because I had my NOCA student ID. She was like, this is a student project. This is a student project. Uh, he's got his NOCA ID. Philip, show him. And I was like showing them.
0: Shaking hands, And
1: yeah, and it was enough for them to be like, all right, they're kids, they're kids. But, and what I realized is that overseer, first off, that was the second time he had called the sheriff's office on us. Another time was earlier before when Wendell was on set. This was later on, we were getting B-roll. Uh, and I realized that that overseer calls the Lafouche Parish Sheriff's office maybe 3 or 4 times a week. So they're so tired of this high string dude. I mean, I also think he's a racist, but it's also like he's 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 making frivolous calls to them all the time. But when I thought when I when I thought like, you know, like this is what we're going down for, you know, part of me was thinking like, all right, maybe this is kind of a dope way to go down making my movie, but like also horrified, you
0: know? <laughs> so there's you know, two parts to that. It would be dope and horrifying <laughs> to go out, go out that way, yeah, yeah. Nineteen <laughs> year old filmmaker dies in the midst of making his film. The dailies were awesome. Yeah, you know, you got yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Too bad it didn't get filmed because it looked like it was going. It was yeah. popping. Yeah. It was popping. Talk about you're 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 the shooter. You're the cinematographer as well. Mm-hmm. So how do you get that right? What 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 is the philosophy there? Mm. Well, I think it's a it's a it's a well shot film. It Ooh. looks interesting and Thank cool, you. and you know, not the normal. Shots that you expect and like, you know, you're playing with light in interesting ways and photography in interesting ways. So, you know, mm-hmm. you're using the camera in a really thoughtful way. So what's your philosophy for that part?
1: Got you. Um, so for me I and I wanted Burning Kane to feel almost documentarian in terms of how mm-hmm. we were with these characters. And that's why I love a lot of sort of handheld, shoulder rig, you know, some sort of steady cam Uh but we plotted out so for me since I was shooting, I we had We had this shot list that I made that we were working off of during set, but I think the shot list for me was just sort of preparation in terms of what I wanted to get, the things in the scene that I felt like we needed to see. Uh, But I just I wasn't going to be tied to everything that I put on the shot list because there are some moments that were just sort of impulsive where I just felt the need to pull the camera off of the tripod and move with the scene kind of organically. I don't know. I think I found my style also in, in, in making Burning Cane as well, because in approaching it in that sort of documentarian way in terms of interiors being pretty much all handheld to create a sort of visceral claustrophobia, especially with Daniel and Jeremiah in that early portion of the film. A lot of our exteriors were a lot steadier, either on tripod sticks or on a shorter shoulder rig with, a, with, with not a lot of motion. Uh, We shot those either on, you know, Pro as HQ or raw Kodak whenever we had the space. Um, But my philosophy with interiors was to sort of rely on on those handheld and sort of shoulder rig situations based on that. And we also were shooting exclusively with natural and practical lighting, which is how I like to do it anyway. But I have to say there was a certain marrying of situations there. Because though that's my style and what I like, it also helped that we needed to move fast and didn't have to worry about the, tr- in the a sort of like three-point lighting scheme or in dealing with any sort of lighting or needing a full gaffing team alongside it. So it was a it was like a, a harmonizing situation in a way.
0: What was what was some of the challenge of staying on budget? Uh, some of the challenges
1: of staying on budget, I said, I would say were. Uh, Honestly, transportation, you know, not really realizing how, because we had a fleet of cars, we didn't have a van, not realizing how much gas can sort of stack up, and especially when we needed to run back to New Orleans for something for the next day of Land and Laurel Valley, if we realized we forgot something, didn't have a battery, we needed to make that, those, that drive back to New Orleans and back again. couple of hours. couple hours. Both ways, it was like three hours. And then also, I'd say with craft services, you know, sometimes... Uh, And that was, I think, in the earlier part of the shoot, that was something that we, uh, we had to account for. But also, it was the first time where I'd ever had a set where we didn't just have pizza every day. You know what I'm saying? There were, I realized that pizza is not great always for the morale. Sometimes, you know, people want greens. They want, they want lettuce. They want <laughs> spinach. They want vegetables, you know? And for all of my other stuff, we didn't care. We were like, any if Domino's is open, let's get a pepperoni pizza, you know, popping in here. You know what I'm saying? It was never that involved. But this time, I was dealing with professionals, you know, actors you keep who fe- had diets. You if know you know keep I mean?
0: feeding people... Crappy food, yeah. Their energy and their mood will sink. Exactly. So you do have to feed them healthy food so they can maintain the energy that you need. Amen. And and I had to learn that, you know, because early on, you know, because the, the
1: pizza was not going to cut it, especially when some of our actors were vegan. Sure. You know, and some of our our team were vegetarians. You know, so that was something that we had to account for. You know,
0: I mean, if you were running. A sports team of course you would think about that yeah and generally i would think about craft services as just sort of a throwaway of like you know we got to feed people mm-hmm. keep keep happy There like, we go yeah. but like no just like for a sports team that sort of nutrition is important is a critical part of the whole picture facts yeah that's Definitely. really interesting so y- you finish the piece and the other important part of filmmaking is promoting, letting the world know mm. that it's there. And beside sitting here with me today and going to a breakfast club and whatever, how do you promote your film? What is your advice for others who make a film, an indie film, and want to let the world know? How do you promote it and let people know it's there? Mm. Well, you promote it in one... Uh for me, the, the entire process of promotion has been
1: really, really interesting because it's, it's, it's a lot of reflection, you know. And I also think that, you know, I'm, I'm just, okay, look, let me be completely transparent and say this. Like, I'm, I feel super fortunate that, you know, that I am talking about something that we were never guaranteed anyone would even see.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So in terms of promoting your work, you have to be, you know, an advocate in that way. Uh, I think in terms of getting the film out there, once we had a distributor, it was so interesting to have to sort of separate from some of the uh, marketing materials because I would get so sort of neurotic about every little thing, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think I was just too attached to everything at a certain level. But I feel like I get to come on and talk my truth and talk about, you know, this story that I put my blood, sweat, and tears into for the past few years that is finally coming out. It also feels like almost a time capsule of where I was when I was 17 in terms of, not in the story itself, but in this, this, the skill set and the product of the film in itself. That's why I'm so eager to get on set for the next one, you know?
0: Well, before we get to the next one, because <clears throat> a lot of people would ask, would wonder, how do you get from we finished the film to we got it on Netflix?
1: Okay, so I'll take you through that. So um, so in the August of uh, my first year at NYU, I was, the film was NYU, was film. NYU film School, um, And that was last year, 2018. I was having a tough time submitting the film to Film Freeway. Uh, What's that? uh, It's just like an online submission portal. People Mm -hmm. either use either Film Freeway or without a box to submit their films for festivals. And that's what we did. And I was having a hard time because I was literally so neurotic, so attached, so afraid of what it would mean to let it go and really let the world take its course. Uh, And I was really getting so, so... So honestly, so anal about a particular piece, like a literal audio blip in the timeline and premiere. And I was trying to fix it and I couldn't get it. And it was driving me insane. My mother told me, yo, Philip, you have to let this go. Like You have to let it out. It's going to exist how it's going to exist. You put everything into it. Now you have to move on. And so I submitted it because I knew if I didn't, a whole another year of festival cycles would have passed up. I submitted it, tried my best to forget about it. And for a while, I was successful. And then like a month later, I got an email from Tribeca from uh, Cara Cusimano, the director of programming. She said it was a beautiful film. I was in class when I saw it. I freaked the fuck out, honestly. And then I went outside, freaked out more, called on my whole fam. And then I had to keep that on lock for months. It was like the best kept secret ever, you know, still going to class. And in all honesty, my motivation in class did start to plummet a little bit. I'm just being real. Uh, but I was prepping for that. And then when that news came out, then it was all, it was wild. Then it was about, you know, doing press, doing, uh, you know, getting a sales team, getting managers, doing all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then you know, also trying to get the film ready for exhibition. Because in the cut that Tribeca scene, I'm so happy that they, that, they, that they dug it. Because I was doing that sound mixing by ear. And I used to listen to, I used to listen to music with the volume all the way up. Sure. So I'm happy that they viewed it on a laptop. Because the moment if they had heard it in a 5 to 1, I would have been so embarrassed. And that's what I was horrified by. But again, throughout this whole process, it's just been, I feel super fortunate that the shit's been on my side. Like, there was a a sound mixer named Blake Lay, who then became our sound designer for The Final Cut, who worked at Warner Brothers Sound, also worked at HBO, someone Kaia knew. Uh, And Blake did, because we had ran out of money by the time we got into Tribeca. So Blake did my sound mixing and sound design for free. But with that, I had to go to him whenever he was available. You know what I mean? And so I missed class because of it. But okay. I was, uh, I mean, if it was Tribeca. I was going to do that. Sure. You know, and so I was there with Blake. Um, and then we got the film ready for exhibition. Tribeca happened. Some real Twilight Zone shit happened where I met some people where I never thought I would meet. And that was crazy. And then we like won who? the festival. And that was like just. Who? Like who? Who'd you meet? De uh, De Niro. Uh, Scorsese, Leonardo Ooh. DiCaprio. Heard him. Uh, yeah, and it was... And honestly, everyone at Tribeca is sweet as hell. Jane Rosenthal, uh, from t- from top down, they're really, so, really sweet. Well, you're
0: in Tribeca, and then somebody at Netflix sees
1: it? Or they, like, oh, still? I'll tell you, Okay, got you, got you. So after we won the festival, then we were doing more festival sort of travel, and we were in talks with distributors and that whole conversation. When I found out that Array was in talks with our team. Ava DuVernay. Ava DuVernay. uh, Yes. Shout out to Ava. So then after I figured that out, then I dug deep more into their catalog and saw that they were a distributor whose sole mission, and you can see it everywhere you go, their sole mission is to promoting the works of filmmakers of color and women of all kinds. And for me, it felt like our intentions but my intention as an artist, like I said, is to create humanizing work of the black experience. And I wrote a note to Ava and Tulane after I heard that they were interested because it pretty much I pretty much just outlined that exactly saying that I feel like there, our intentions as artists are the same. And for me, Burning Came was a film made with grassroots filmmaking based and really a passion project for everyone involved. No financial incentive, really. And for me, it felt like there was such a sort of congruency in terms of our values and what we wanted to promote as artists that I felt like Array would be a perfect home. And I left my number and said like, look, I'm around. Call me whenever, just sort of like not knowing that they would see that note. But I sent that to Tulane and Ava over email. No, I think it was just Tulane at that point because uh, I got their email from my sales team um, and waited. And then I got a call from Ava and she was like, hey, Philip, it's Ava DuVernay. And I freaked the fuck out. <laughs> and then I was, I Did was- Did you, you know, believe it right away? Or dude, you like, at first no. I was like, yo- I mean that kind of that's a pinch me moment, you know what I'm saying? Pinch me moment amongst all pinch me moments. I mean Ava, Ava in terms of our community is literally at the forefront of creating discussion in her art. Hell period. Oh yeah. yeah. So I, once I heard from her, I was like I was in a library. I was like oh shit, let me call you back one second. Ran out, called her right back. So like Ava, Ava, Ava. Then she told me that she wanted to make an offer for the film, and then she told me that she asked me what I wanted from the film, and she's told me that oftentimes filmmakers will speak about. You know, what was encouraging and refreshing for her, but that she liked was that she said sometimes filmmakers will speak about the awards that they want to get or blah, 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 blah. But I really want to start a discussion within the black community about religion and its role in our community, how it is either a part of our advancement or not. And to me, I feel like I'm on one side of that issue, you know, on the latter, you know, but still opening that discussion in an objective way amongst amongst black people, you know, was an important part of that for sure.
0: So Ava takes it. How does it get from
1: there and okay, so so Ava, as a distributor array, has a production deal with Netflix. so they they release their they've released their films in a sort of hybrid mechanism of releasing it to Netflix, but also doing grassroots screenings in different locations. I've gone to Spelman. I'm going to North Carolina School of the Arts this weekend with Ava. Um, just finding, and I'm hopefully about to book the film to go to Harvard with it. That would be insane. Just met her at the uh, Glamour Awards. Um, and so I feel like, One, their intention as a distributor is to get it out in a grassroots way through social media, through screenings from the community that the film actually speaks to, uh, which is, you know, our community. And then they have a production deal set up at Netflix. So they went as a distributor. They have the film. They set it up at Netflix and then set out all these other screenings to spread the word to the people who would really be watching it and invested in the film in the first place. So what do you want to do next? Uh, My next film is about the New Orleans chapter of the Black Panthers. It's a narrative feature.
0: Ooh. I'm so excited. Oh, that's interesting because we usually think we always think about the Black Panthers as a West Coast phenomenon. No, I
1: know, and that's but the whole they're... thing. And the New Orleans chapter of the Panthers, at the time that we're with them, they weren't even a, a chapter yet; they were still an organizing bureau of the National Committee to Combat Fascism. And I got to know those Panthers early on in high school. Um, you know, Barbara Guyton, The film the film really centers on uh, Barbara Guyton, the leader of the free breakfast program in New Orleans. Uh, but the New Orleans chapter. You know, they were kids ranging from 13 to 23 years old. Barbara was 19 at the time with two kids coordinating the free breakfast program, feeding dozens upon dozens of kids every morning in the Desire housing projects.
0: See, we think about the Panthers, we think about guns, 10-point program. Don't think about like free breakfast program.
1: Or the fact that people so were- So important. So important. That's what scared the, the establishment the most, that these people fighting for their community could actually help their community. Yes. The, the, uh, the proposition of black self-governance is very, very intimidating to whites in power. Yes. You know? And I think that's why in that era, especially considering how New Orleans was still in a sort of like de facto Jim Crow, you know, there were still sort of white only signs around the city. There's still an air of that. Something as you know, pro-black as the Panthers coming in and promoting their community was an intimidating thing for people who felt like they, they were losing their grip on the control. you know. And I think the New Orleans Panthers in that chapter is fascinating, so I'm stoked to get into that.
0: So once you've done a film, finish it, you can step back and say, okay, that was good, but there's certain things I should have done differently that mm-hmm. I will do differently next time. So what'd you learn that you will... That you can take as you go forward, and to do things differently, and to be a, a, a better filmmaker mm-hmm. on the next piece.
1: Um, something that I can, that I think I should, that I could improve on that I look back on Burning Kane as like a real lesson. Um, one is, I think being more, you know, honestly more decisive on a on a on a particular level in terms of like how set operates and the things that I want, you know. Because it'll, I'll, I'll come to a conclusion, but it can sometimes take me a long time, too long to really come to that conclusion. Mm. But I also think in terms of getting more coverage, look, this is straight up applicable filmmaking. Getting more coverage, straight up. I'll be attached that to means... Like getting more takes, more like say like a master shot. Say like you, in, you move forward and you prep for a master shot of a scene being a long take between the pews, right? That's the master. Coverage would be, say, getting then a profile of the same thing. Maybe at a different point in that, not necessarily being the whole scene, but maybe the end of it, you want to get a close up profile, or maybe you want to get uh, an insert of their hands. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I fully saw, I, f- I felt like I saw the piece, how it would turn out. And I love longer takes that kind of in sort of, I guess, expand and sort of brood their way through. But I think getting more coverage is just straight up gives you more options and flexibility in post. And that's something that I, that I wish I had, you know?
0: Yeah. Interesting, interesting. So, when you... What do you see for yourself over the next, like, five years as Mm -hmm. a filmmaker? What are some of your goals and dreams? Um, You know, I want to create
1: work, honestly, and it's dope that Ava's my mentor, but I want to create work that really, really forces us to to question and sort of, you know, be held kind of accountable culturally. You know, I want... I want, work, I, want, I want my work, one, to, to always be clear that my intention is not to demonize anything that I'm talking about, but also to really, really foster discussion on the things that I'm talking about. Like I said with Burning Kane, that was my intention, to really, really sort of have us look critically at religion and how it sort of perpetuates a lot of antiquated traditionalist values within our community. You know, I feel like so much of a lot of the, you know, the homophobia that runs rampant within our community can sort of be pointed back to the church. You know, there's so many things there that I wanted to speak about. But I just want my thing, want my, want my career to sort of be defined by really trying to foster productive, you know, conversations for our community and really kind of steer us toward the light, no matter how bleak those stories and those cautionary tales can be really trying to do my best in terms of trying to showcase work that will question us to lead in the, a sort of lighter path, you know, despite how bleak that, that, that information can be sometimes, Mm. um, but I don't know, you know, anything that happens after that is, 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 is fortunate Lanya, yeah, in a way.
0: Thanks to Philip for a great interview, and thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. I'm on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Please leave a review on iTunes. It definitely helps. And tell your friends about the show. Torre Show is written by me, Toray, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editors, Ryan Woodhall, And our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. We're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back with another amazing guest. Because the man can't shut us down.